1: Welcome back. It's another week, another show. Thank you for downloading and pressing play. This week, Matthew and I welcome actor, writer, director, producer, Michael Knight. No, not the character, played by David Hasselhoff in Knight Rider. This is an actual person, an actual actor who works at many local theme parks, theaters, and attractions, along with me and Matthew. Michael got on the horn with us to discuss Season 8, Episode 11, Right and Wrong, which had an original air date of December thirteenth, 1986. I think we're ready to jump on in. Let's face the facts with Michael Knight. Michael Knight, welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. Great to have you here. Matthew suggested we get in touch with you, and I jumped at the idea because I uh, we know each other, but we've technically not really worked together, and it's that weird Orlando theater thing of peripherally knowing people, but mm-hmm. you don't really know them know them.
2: Yeah, you see each other at auditions, and that's usually about it. Until you finally get that one job together and then it's like, well, we've known
1: each other so we're just friends. Yeah, we've been besties for a decade. Yeah. Yeah. So we're glad to have you here and thank you, Matthew, for suggesting, Michael.
3: You are welcome. It is purely, purely (laughs) selfish of me to have suggested him because I'm just going to tell you, dear listeners, Michael Knight is probably... I'm not saying probably for me, I know he definitely is for me, but just the most handsome, beautiful man I have ever been in the same the presence of. Like, you know how like, you're like, you're the most beautiful person I've ever seen in person. Like, he's just so, I mean, look <laughs> I don't,
2: it's hard to, cause like, I feel like oh, yeah, the most praise. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's the most praise I've ever gotten, even uh, from my wife. I don't know. She tells me I'm attractive a lot, but I'll take it. I appreciate it. I've got decent hair and I, I like how I look with a beard. So I think it's
3: been
1: it's been working pretty
3: well. <laughs> I'm not mad at the beard.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, Michael, uh, at, at the Zoom and uh, when I've seen you in person, it's like, yeah, that is not an unattractive man. Why don't you back off for a second,
3: David? <laughs> Why don't you just take a step back, you know? Well, I was just trying to agree with you and tell you Michael's attractive man. Get my man's name out your mouth. All right.
2: (laughs) To be fair, I feel like if anyone's got like a claim, like Matthew like like stuck that flag in the ground like multiple times, which is not a euphemism, but it could be. I stuck that
3: flagpole in (laughs) it hard as I could, as soon as I saw my chance, I rushed (laughs) in the gate like a like a horse off of its leash.
1: (laughs) Well, don't worry. I'm not trying to steal your man. I'm saving myself for uh, Adrian's Med 1982. Just got to build my time machine. Anyway, uh, we are thrilled to have you here to discuss season eight, episode 11, called Right and Wrong. The original air date was December 13th of 1986. And uh, usually I always like to ask, did you have any relationship with the show? Michael, you're, you're a bit younger than, than myself. So did you grow up with it? Did you watch it in reruns or ever or never?
0: Here's the thing,
2: yes. I, it, it's funny, there was a period of time when I was a kid where Nick at Night was like killing it. And I feel like I got just as much, I mean, the shows I remember watching, I mean like Laverne and Shirley, um, you know, Happy Days, The Monkeys, uh, The Brady Bunch. And and what was funny about, like, I, I realized later is after watching Naked Night for so long, they, they sort of fast forwarded time. So like, because they would have an episode on per night as opposed to per week, so they started with like, you know, I Love Lucy and all the black and white shows, you know, Dick Van Dyke, Mary Tyler Moore, all that. But then, well, Mary Tyler Moore was later, but they started going so fast. So I was like, I'm watching old TV from the sixties and seventies. And then all of a sudden I was watching TV from the eighties. Um, and I didn't even realize it, you know, cause then there was like, um, there was different strokes. And so some of it went so fast that I wasn't keeping up with it as much. So I did see quite a few episodes of the facts of life. Um, but I it was moving so fast, and I was kind of I was a little bit older at that point. When I it was funny, when I was younger, I would watch Nick at more, like probably around like eight, nine, 10, 11, 12. And then like once I got into my mid-teens, they started playing like stuff from like the 80s. So there was like um, I don't know if they did it, or Disney Channel was doing things like Growing Pains and um Step by Step, mm-hmm. which is like 80s, early 90s. Yeah. Um, so I remember watching those, but I did catch a few episodes. I never, long story short, too late. I never like really got into it, into it. I just, I
1: want, I've never, I haven't sat down and really processed all that. Uh, So that was a good moment for me just now. Well, good. Uh, We always like to ask, anytime we have a heterosexual male on the show on the very rare occasion, uh, we always ask, did you have a crush on any of the girls? And uh, which which one of them would you say is your type? I can actively say that both Joe and Tootie are attractive. Okay. Well, this
2: has been um,
3: fun. <laughs> <laughs>
1: like, I mean, since Carol Lee has modeled her entire look and her entire life on Blair Warner. Uh,
2: well, here's the thing about Blair. Blair is Blair's conventional. You know, like Bla- Blair, they write Blair to be the attractive one, and anytime they do that with a character in in like the history of me watching stuff. I am always not into it. I'm like, you're, you're telling me I'm supposed to be attracted to this woman. Therefore, no thanks. You know, it's, it's kind of like um, with my early 90s shows, you know, what I loved about like Topanga Lawrence on Boy Meets World is that like, she started off being goofy and weird and then she became attractive and then she became like attractive. But the show itself didn't lean into that until like maybe the third or fourth season. Mm -hmm. So like, I appreciate it when like the girls aren't meant to be like the attractive one. They're just the girl and and their natural attractiveness comes through.
3: My friend Hannah was her um, body double for that show. She was, with with No, for the back of Topanga's head.
2: Oh, wow. That's awesome.
1: (laughs) Who knew? (laughs) No, I am a huge Boy Meets World fan. Uh, let's get talking about this one. I always start off with a little bit of nuts and bolts, as I like to call it, about who wrote and who directed. This episode was written by Jane Anderson and Ross Brown. They've written previous episodes. We have discussed Jane Anderson in the past. She would go on to win three Emmy Awards, one in 1993 for writing The Positively True Adventures of the Alleged Texas Cheerleader Murdering Mom say that three times fast. And then more recently, she won two Emmys for writing and producing Olive Kittridge* in 2014. That's the series with the wonderful Frances McDormand. And then Ross Brown, the other writer, this is the third of seven episodes uh, he will write for The Facts of Life. He just did two very recent episodes, season eight, episode seven, called The Ratings Game, and season eight, episode eight, called The Wedding Day. And, uh, Matthew and I agreed both of those need a little bit of work. We have some notes we are sending back to him in our time machine. Um, but he would also be a producer for the show and remain so through the end of the series. But we've talked more at length about them in the past.
3: This is another reason I'm, I'm glad you brought up Boy Meets World. Because you are, and it's like step by step in those shows like that. Because those like late 80s, early 90s shows are full tilt boogie as far as like um, where we are with the facts of life now, where the show Bible doesn't matter, um, where things are on the set don't matter. Um, and so I'm, I'm interested to get your input on this episode from a writing standpoint, Michael, because um, you seem to enjoy shows that are crap.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the TGIF lineup, that's a good way to put it. It was just full tilt boogie, crappy tv britain under the guise of well it's family entertainment so you know it can't be too much of a thinker it's for parents and their kids to watch together yeah that's the ticket but anyway uh the episode was directed by john boab who's the in-house director and he directs i think all but two episodes this season so this is their um regular guy who always directs the episodes and uh that's pretty much it for the nuts and bolts. So, Michael Knight, yes, this is where we like to put our guest on the spot and ask you mm-hmm. if you would please provide a one to two sentence synopsis of the entire episode, right and wrong, uh, similar to a listing like you might read in TV Guide, just really short and sweet. Okay. If it runs too long, I will warn you, Matthew shall judge you. Ready, set, and go. Okay. Uh, Natalie
2: tries to get published in a magazine, but finds out someone has plagiarized her
1: work and does her best to confront the person who plagiarized God, her. I love you. What? <laughs> I think that meets the Matthew Arter seal of approval.
3: I don't know, think and... he could have done anything wrong, though. I don't think he would have <laughs> made a mistake no matter what. So.
1: Matthew, you got a little drool on your... Um, Got to wipe your... <laughs> Wow, okay, before we start, I do wanna say, I'm so sorry you don't get to see Over Our Heads. Were you familiar with this season where they've got the the novelty uh, gift and unusual things store? Or are you more familiar with the Edna's Edibles years or the Eastland school years? I So
2: I can say it was weird for me to come into this because i was unaware that uh the show ever looked like Uh this so the long answer is or the short answer is no I, i i'm not familiar with any of those episodes um because all i really ever remember was them as kids maybe early teens and mrs garrett so when cloris leachman showed up and then they all looked like they were 23 at minimum i was like i was unaware this show was this, this. Uh, it, I didn't know it lasted for that many seasons and I didn't know that they got that old. So the answer is,
1: is no, uh, I was not familiar with, I did not get to see any of those. We begin this episode uh, in the living room. And uh, by the way, the whole episode, no one's minding the store. Who's minding the store? I ask every single week, it seems. Not really anybody minding the store. Maybe at one point, Andy does say something, but, but, but anyhow, very, very first thing, weird thing, music intro. As we start and are rolling the credits, there's music playing in it. It's piano music. And while it's happening, we have Joe and George moving a piano around the room with Beverly Ann directing them to do so. And she's like, okay, uh, let's go over here, over there, over, over. And then they stop and the music stops at the same time. And then she's like, well, not there, keep going. And then they move it finally into its place as the last final post music chord is hit. They, for, they've never done anything like this with the underscore music actually being synced or commenting on the action of the show. And that was very strange.
2: To me, it, it felt like, what I liked about that was like, it, it felt like all of the characters in the episode also felt like it was strange.
3: <laughs>
2: like, like she's moving this piano around and it's clear that where it's gotten to is the like umpteenth place that they moved it to. So like, the, again, I'm not
1: super familiar. There's no precedence for this piano, right? Oh, yes and no. Okay. Yes, we need to talk about this piano. The piano actually first appeared in season eight, episode five, and then proceeded to be in that position for the next five weeks. Then last week for episode 10 of the season, it was not there. And now here, episode 11, it's like they're just bringing it in and putting it into position for the first time. So the piano has been physically there. And then not there, and now it's back. And then they've now decided to acknowledge the PM. Right. And what is going on here, and this is not atypical, they filmed the shows in a different order than they were broadcast. So if you look at the production order, this does make sense. This was actually only the fifth episode shot for the season. So even though it's the 11th one that was broadcast, this is actually a lot earlier in uh, Beverly Ann's time there. So if you look at it from that standpoint, it makes sense, but you, you wonder, it's like, well, why did they broadcast them out of order? That's just so, that doesn't make, it's confusing. That's. I feel like that's TV though. Like TV has always done that. If there was a Christmas episode and they wanted to be sure the Christmas episode gets broadcast the week of Christmas, sure, go for it. Or in, in the case of this season, there is a Valentine's episode coming up that they make sure to coordinate because I think it actually is on February 14th. But it is just funny that it's like, why not just show them in order, especially if you're going to be doing something like this. Um, Well, And
3: if that's the case, have a fucking script supervisor to be like, hey, guys, why are we moving this piano six months after it's already (laughs) been in that position? And by the way, George's hair is way longer right now than it was last week when we saw him. Mm -hmm. So,
0: yeah,
1: absolutely. That's another thing in my notes is that uh, this is only the second appearance of George Clooney this season, Uh, but his previous appearance was actually filmed after this. And after a significant haircut, so <laughs> this his hair is kind of long and a little unkempt and very mulledy When we were just commenting only last week that we were like, "Look at how short and sassy and businesslike and professional George's hair looks." It's like, "Oh well, no, nope, never mind." So continuity out the window. Again, I'm just talking from the one episode that I've seen, but
2: I, I don't know how much the week to week affects the following week. Like if it's one of the shows obviously where it's problem of the week, but certain things probably carry over. Yeah. Um, But this seemed completely isolated. Like this seemed related to nothing before and nothing afterward was going to very much come of it. So I feel like they almost filmed this one and then had other things maybe they wanted to put in before it
1: and they just figured somewhere down the line they'll be, it would explain the piano situation. I don't know. The good thing about all of this is With the arrival of the piano, that means the big, fugly, gigantic gray bench that used to be in that alcove at the bend of the stairs is now gone. And I always hated that bench because it was massive, took up a lot of space, and they never, ever used it for anything. So I like that there's something functional there now. David does not like big benches, and he cannot lie. (laughs) So Beverly Ann is excited. She says, "Let's go get my sheet music out of the garage." And after having moved the heavy piano around, George was like, "How big is this sheet music? How much is it?" And she's like, "Oh, it's not a. It's a, it's a small box. You just might have to move a refrigerator to get it." Beverly Ann moved in uh, by the chronology of when they made this episode. Beverly Ann's been there for five weeks. Why does she still have cartons of shit stacked in the garage behind a damn refrigerator? What else was delivered with this piano that suddenly showed up? Uh, Hopefully she used the same freight company to ship Charlotte Ray's sewing machine to her down in Africa in the Peace Corps. Because that happened a couple weeks ago, Michael, in that we had a gigantic antique sewing machine that they were allegedly going to be shipping to Charlotte Ray in Africa.
3: So hopefully they got a, a group rate or something on it. Yeah. I'm more uh, upset by, upset slash excited by like this Winchester fucking mystery house that they live in Oh, that now has an, that's how you, I, we, have we seen that door before, David? Yes, Beverly Ann and George
1: do go out this weird side door that is downstage, so closer to the camera and the audience than the fireplace. And I have down, this is weird. And then in the back of my memory, I thought, I feel like we have seen it there before. I feel like we have. And sure enough, it has appeared there before. And it is in exactly the same place, like the jig jog of the wall. We had something like that in season five. So three years ago, when it was the Edna's Edibles version of the set, I'll post pictures of it. But it's, it was pretty surprising when I was like, oh my God, it's actually
3: right, it actually works. There are more entrances to this fucking building than is safe <laughs> for five women to live in a building that has eight different front doors, back doors, side doors. I couldn't believe it
1: myself when I was like, oh, here's another inconsistency. And oh, actually it was, it was there before. They just never use it. All right.
2: Uh-huh. I feel I feel like there was a thing in TV in the like 70s, 80s and 90s where they just did that and just accepted that the audience was just gonna go along. Like I'm like again to cite Boy Meets world, um, the vast changes that they make in casting, uh, the way that they change the school around, there's a door. In Boy Meets World, that has a different. It's in the same place every every week in the school, but depending on what they need it to be, it's the janitor's closet, it's a bathroom, oh, yeah. it's an office. It just so like so. I feel like that's just something that they did in television back then. Maybe because I don't know how much soundstage they had, and they were like, "All right, what are we going to do? Are we going to have to change our story so that we fit the set that we have, or can we change the set minimally so that we can tell this one little tidbit of a story?" Mm-hmm. And I feel like they, they went
3: with the line. They also didn't think that two queens forty years later would be watching the show <laughs> and going line by line, episode by episode, and and yeah. disparaging no, their guess, hard fucking work. You know. But. <laughs> well, I
2: mean, did, did fandoms like they like? The, I mean, like you can find a niche fandom for anything that ever existed at this point. But I wonder if yeah, if if back in the day, because I feel like you know producers and writers do consider that now so from a writing standpoint you consider it's like well if we have fans they will rip us apart uh on twitter or whatever um but like i don't know maybe it's because of social media because i feel like maybe people did notice but they didn't care that much because it wasn't immediate well it's also because
3: of vhs and dvds and all that like you know i mean you were able to
2: rewatch it because, yeah, before you just you had to forget. I
3: purchased Greece on seven different fucking formats, for Christ's sake. <laughs> so. Somebody did say
1: if your Gen X uh, person that you know is angry, it's because they bought the same record album on vinyl, on 8-track, on cassette, on CD, and now they're paying a streaming service to be able to listen to it now. Mm-hmm. We are three lines into this episode, and I'm sorry, I'm, we're getting into the weeds here, and this is my fault. We're
3: not going to go line by line in this episode, David. No. No, we're not.
1: Um, <laughs> so then Blair comes in, mail call, and she says, Natalie, are you waiting for a letter from Desperate Confessions? And Natalie quickly grabs it saying, oh my God, yes, I submitted a story. Maybe they are going to publish it, and I'm going to make some money. And no, it's a rejection letter. Too bad, because she had worked very hard on this story called Barbara's Downbeat Summer. And Blair, who happens to have a copy of the actual magazine handy, says to her, well, you know, this isn't like the, you know, fanciest of magazines. Do you really want to be published in a a publication where (laughs) it's got a story? Look at this one. Roxanne's August of Passion by some writer named Desiree. And uh, Tootie starts to read the Roxanne story, and no sooner We're all just get...
3: gonna pretend like this isn't a, a thinly veiled cover of Penthouse Letters.
1: But, oh, is that what you took it? I took it to be more of a, like, you know, like the articles in Cosmopolitan about the, the, the it's more I like took a... it to
3: be like a Penthouse
1: Letters. Penthouse Forum. Yeah, well, it's
2: a, but it's not, it's, from what I, again, this is the one episode I've watched in maybe 15 years. Um, but like, it, wouldn't it just be, it seems like women of the day would send in their romance stories to this. And so you would read short romance stories. So it's not true confessionals, right? It's it's literally for women who are like, I'm trying my hand at writing smut. Yeah. Right? That's- yeah. yeah.
1: No, it's not. I don't think yeah. it's it's fuck writing. I think it's just... You know, steamy. You know, it's bodice ripper stuff. What's what's it called? Yeah. The the what are the romance Harlequin romance novels? There it is. Yeah, yeah it's. Yeah. I think it's more of that ilk than it is. Yeah. Uh, you know, she started sucking my cock type of which, stuff.
3: Which that is exactly what Penthouse Forum is, but for women. Oh, but, but it's not as graphic. Penthouse Forum is very graphic. Yes, women- because it's for men, and men are stupid. And yeah. you can't, you can't say she had a voluptuous chest. You have to literally write for a man. She had TIG old bitties. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and they'd be like, TIG old bitty. I don't understand that.
2: I gotta be honest. Uh, and again, speaking as the, the straight man here, if I ever was, if I ever read and they were not being ironic, like, yo, this chick had TIG old bitties and I was supposed to like feel something about that. That wouldn't work. It just wouldn't work.
1: <gasps> so- As soon as Tootie gets into reading this thing, Natalie recognizes a lot of the verbiage. And she's like, whoa, 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 that's my story. I mean, the name is different and the location has changed, but this is clearly my story. And she adds, it was the best thing I ever wrote.
3: Maybe the best thing I'll ever write. Yeah, and I was hoping to get it published in a fucking penny saver porn magazine. (laughs) Last week she could smell a Pulitzer, for God's sake. <laughs> when she was writing an article for a weekly newspaper. This year her biggest hope and dream is to get published in a dirty magazine. That was Honestly. my drag
1: name back in the 90s, Penny Saber Porn. <laughs>
3: <laughs>
1: is,
2: is, it, is it like a hyphenated last mm-hmm. name?
1: Or Penny Saber hyphen <laughs> porn. Yeah. Saber porn. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. So she's like, this is clearly a case of plagiarism, a great Blair Warner line. Don't hesitate, litigate. And George says that he knows a guy uh, right there in town who is a lawyer and he helps him hang doors on the weekend. George is like a handyman contractor type, by the way. Were you surprised to see George Clooney in this show? Did that that surprise you, Michael? Oh, very much. Yeah. I I was like, oh, there's George Clooney. Okay. (laughs) Honestly? George Clooney, never a bad thing to have him pop up in something you're not expecting, huh? I I was
2: like, I love seeing where people get their starts, you know?
1: I absolutely love seeing that. (laughs) Me too. So then we move on to the next scene. We're at the dining room table, and this is this guy, Jack, who is George's friend, who is a lawyer, is looking over the paperwork and things. Oh, my God. Talk about 80s-tastic. Jack has got not too mullety a mullet. It's not too short on the sides, but it is long in the back and his sideburns are absent. He has got his beard shaved up so high that the hair is just a horizontal line over the top of his ear. I mean, that. I remember that look. That was such a big thing in the 80s. It was like literally the opposite of what's today with having all the facial hair and stuff but oh my god what a product of the decade
3: just of note and we're all adults sitting around the table let's have some pink lemonade yeah (laughs) anybody else anybody else want some pink lemonade everybody
0: anybody wants some kool-aid how about some kool-aid anybody you got some (laughs) crystal light pink lemonade
3: Jesus
1: Christ. I know. So true. So, so, so true. Well, this actor who's playing Jack, his name is Dennis Drake. Uh, Interestingly, uh, he's not just an actor. He's also a writer and a producer. He has six writing credits, including two episodes of The Nanny between 93 and 94. Uh, He was a co-producer and writer on a series called Maggie Winters, which was 98 to 99. That ran for one season, and it was a Faith Ford vehicle. So that would have been post Murphy Brown, but pre Open Faith. And uh, he was also the co producer on some episodes of Will and Grace in 1999. Uh, now, as far as being a writer, uh, in 2003, he has two significant writing credits Legally Blonde 2, Red, White, and Blonde. He was Story by. What a great movie. He was not the screenwriter, but it was story by him and his writing partner. And more importantly, that same year, he co-wrote the screenplay for Down With Love. That is also a good movie. Ewan McGregor, Renee Zellweger, movie that's a salute to the Rock Hudson, Doris Day, rom-coms of the 60s, Sarah Paulson, early in her career. yeah. What a cool, stylized movie that was. I love that movie. And I'm like, this actor, actor on this screen wrote that. That's, that mind is blown. Good for him. Because as an actor, he doesn't have a lot of credits. He's only got 14 credits between 84 and 91. This is the only time he'll appear in The Facts of Life. Um, and more importantly, I'm sure, Matthew, you are chomping at the bit to indicate when he was on The Golden Girls. Do you oh, recognize? No. Actually, I'm not. Uh, It apparently was season one, episode two, called Guess Who's Coming to the Wedding.
3: Oh, he played um, the man that Dorothy's daughter was going to get married to.
1: Ding, ding. Yep. Now, Dennis Drake, the actor, played a character called, are you ready for this? Dennis. Yep. Marrying uh, Dorothy's daughter, Kate, and it was the second episode of the entire series. So it's the first time we meet Stan and we see Dorothy and Stan having to interact as ex-spouses.
3: So uh, and yeah. Dorothy has that great speech. I said, I didn't get a chance to say goodbye, Stanley. And you're <laughs> like, oh, B. Oh, bless your heart. I couldn't get past the fact that he was being upstaged in this whole scene by fucking Tootie hanging on George Clooney and like playing with his hair. Get the fucking
0: back, Tootie. Yeah, Were they, wait, are they not dating? No,
2: no. It, wasn't she like on his arm and like all over him? Like,
1: wouldn't you be? I okay, mean, Michael, I'm sorry, yeah, not but you. I,
2: I, again, I don't know anything. So wait, okay, hold on. I'm sorry. I thought that was George Clooney's function on the show for the like. She's he's the boyfriend. What's his function on the show? To to walk
3: in and look like George Clooney. <laughs> oh.
2: God bless. His
1: dad owns uh, the hardware store across the street, and when the Entire store burned down. They needed a cheap contractor. And he had just uh recently relocated. So he was uh the guy that was there and was cheap and of course was cute. But uh isn't that funny? I was so busy looking at Dennis Drake's lack of sideburns. I'm I'm not as aware of this. Tootie was hanging all over George, was she? Oh
3: my god, she was running her fingers through his hair, playing with his ear. Like it was like
1: and Michael, you thought they were involved. To the point that
2: I, I assumed actually, I remember having the thought, like, look at that. Look, look that's some forward thinking for the 80s, right? Oh,
0: no,
1: I mean, I mean, great. It would have been awesome. I don't think, yeah, I don't think this show would have been I mean, <laughs> brave enough to try to attempt that. But uh wow. Yeah, I totally missed that.
2: I, I just assumed I was like, hey, all right, they've got George in to be Tootie's arm candy. Like, that's great. Like, what a great role for future actor George Clooney. Like, wow.
1: Well, this guy, Jack, is looking over the articles, comparing the the two stories, and he says it is a clear case of plagiarism, but we have to find out who this Desiree person is that stole Natalie's story. And Natalie is saying, well, nobody here would know except, but somehow it comes to accusing Beverly Ann. And Cloris Leachman is quite funny in this episode, by (coughs) the way, for how early this is in the Beverly Ann years, uh, she's, she's got a lot of good lines and is playing a lot of good laughs. I got to give her credit considering they're still kind of finding their way with her. But she responds when Natalie, I mean, and it's not like a, it, it's a very pointed accusatory accusation, not a, Hey, could something weird have happened? Anyhow, she goes after Beverly Ann and Beverly Ann just looks and says, I refuse to participate in this damnable witch hunt.
3: Very funny. And I mean, uh, never mind that a lawyer might just say, well, I'm a lawyer. Here's a thought. Dear Naughty Confessions magazine, we believe that one of your stories was plagiarized. and we'd like to know who the fuck
1: Desiree is. Yes. I'm, I, I'm getting whiplash from nodding so hard in agreement with you matthew I'm like well we've got well we Desiree could be anybody how in the world are we going to find out who it is the magazine has
3: to know who it is if you put up uh, anyway they sent her 500 bucks yeah
1: now andy comes in the room andy is this little boy who is also uh, a neighbor who just comes in and hangs out and works at the store totally fine that he is uh 12 years old or is he 13 this season god you think i would know this wouldn't i
2: i will say as far as that character went there wasn't a a single moment where um i didn't want to hit him oh no
1: (laughs) yeah he just
2: he had nothing but a smackable face like just wow um and also like his his attitude for that first moment was so Like, I grab that kid and absolutely smack him across. Yeah, he
1: did need a slap in this scene. Usually he's there kind of, you know, kind of being the Eve Arden, making the little wise crack from the sidelines. Ha ha. But no, in this episode, he particularly the way it's written, it's odd. Uh, And what we're talking about here is that uh, Andy says, Beverly Ann, it's your shift in the store. So, oh, someone's minding the store. That's good to know. And he says to her, this is how interesting, this is late 1986. He says, try to push the Madonna Frisbees. I think we misjudged her appeal. Did you? <laughs> Did you misjudge Madonna's appeal? Yeah, 1986. Yeah, she's already been in showbiz for three years and I think she's done, don't you? Who would have ever dreamed the staying power? What a, what a statement. Yeah." And uh, just to put the timeline of Madonna's career, she had released her first album in 83, Like a Virgin in 84, and True Blue had just come out in 86 in the summertime. So True Blue was kind of a turning point where the songs were less bubblegummy and had a little bit more
3: deeper thoughts and ideas and all that. So, um, and I will agree with the wonderful Michael. And its it was out of character for for Andy this episode. And he did one of my least favorite kinds of least favorite things. I hate sitcom lying and I hate it when it's um, this pointed. Like, I hate it even more than people like, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a tree. Yeah, that's what that is. Fuck off. I hate it even more when he's like, I don't know anything, just leave me out of it. Oh, well, I I believe him completely, don't you know? Don't you think that he doesn't know anything about this? Oh, it must be.
1: Fuck off, Andy. Yeah, because it is discovered that Natalie, in tracing her steps, says, the final draft never left my hands. Well, except when I had Andy make copies for me, at which point they went, "Uh, Andy, you did return all the copies to me. And he admits he did keep one copy for himself. And again, Natalie, accusatory. So accusatory, not a, let's talk about this. Could that copy have gotten into the wrong hand? She just went straight to Andy, why did you take credit for my story? And yeah, his response is, I don't know anything about it. Just leave me alone, okay? And he walks out and they're like, okay. I got it from watching you, okay? (laughs) So yeah, this is a very weird twist and yeah, very out of character for him. But uh, the next scene, they're trying to reach his parents by phone and uh, not getting an answer. Beverly Ann remembers his parents were going to Europe. He's staying with his grandmother. Um, Edna, rather, Beverly Ann does start with the, I have a story. Beverly Ann is already being painted as a storyteller, Michael. That's not really what Mrs. Garrett was. So uh, Beverly Ann tells these stories and they don't always click, but they sometimes do a little bit. But this story was Uh, that Edna had stolen something from her once. But, um, oh, and Natalie does interject. That can't be, Mrs. Garrett is perfect. I thought of Matthew on that line because Matthew's always complained that Mrs. Garrett
3: was portrayed as like uh, a saint, like who could do no wrong. I couldn't get past the directing of this scene because for Beverly and story, she picks up a chair that is center stage practically and moves it to behind Joe and Tootie so she's not even in their sight line anymore. Yeah. So very uh, weird. What the fu- where did you go, girl? What, why <laughs> do you gotta go there? I, 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 I did, and there was no purpose. I waited for, like, oh, maybe something's gonna happen center stage that she needed to be out of the way for. But literally, she picks up a chair, moves it to the weirdest place on the stage she might as well have taken it up the stairs to the landing and sat down there and said, I've got a story. (laughs) Ah, I mean, I love you. I love you, Chloris. I know that was not your choice, but weird. It's camera blocking and how they apparently wanted to frame her or light her or something. But,
1: but the point. I did wonder if
3: it was because she was like, I much prefer my left side or something. I did wonder if that's why she's like, if I'm going to sit down, I'm going to be filmed. Like I just, I did wonder that, but then they filmed her straight on anyway. So it wasn't that but it was just weird to me. Yeah, the point of Beverly Ann's story is that Edna did steal from her when they were
1: children, but Edna turned out fine. So let's not assume the worst about Andy over this one thing. And Joe even does say, with surprise, that made sense. Like, oh my God, a Beverly Ann story actually clicked, because usually they're a little bit more out there and rambly and scatterbrained. Um, But no sooner do we have this moment than ding dong Andy is at the door with his grandma Polly, the sweet little old lady and uh, let's talk about her a bit, this is actress Billy bird, Billy bird is one of those character actresses that you have seen in 150,000 things, and you can't remember a single one of them did you recognize her Michael. I
2: did. Uh, She is the old lady from Home Alone. Yes. She's the lady that that Catherine O'Hara is trying to buy plane tickets off Mm -hmm. of, And I think succeeds, like they never show it happening, but I think she succeeds in Home Alone getting the plane tickets from her.
1: I don't remember. I haven't seen the movie in a while, but interesting that you, that's what you recognize her from. John Hughes used her in three movies, 16 Candles. She's the grandmother in that. Home Alone and uh, Dennis the Menace. She was a vaudevillian performer in her younger years before she got into film and television. She did tours with the USO to entertain entertain our boys overseas. Uh, here she is 78 years old and uh, she had recently been on Benson as a semi-regular from 84 to 86. And she would go on to be a regular on Dear John, The Judd Hurst Show which was 83 episodes that she was on from 88 to 92. Yeah, she's got a long and decorated career and uh, lived to be 94 years old, died in 2002. So lived a good long life. Uh, This is her only appearance on The Facts of Life. This is the only time we ever meet Andy's grandmother. I think it might be the only time we ever discuss Andy's grandmother because Michael, spoiler alert, In eight weeks, Andy is going to suddenly steal from them. And they're going to be like, what the fuck? Why are you stealing from us? And he's like, my foster parents are breaking up. They're getting a divorce, which means I'm going to end up going back to the orphanage. No mention of the grandmother and never previously a mention of this being Foster parents, we always were like talking about Andy's parents. We never knew he had come from a broken home or whatever, but this whole plot is created in eight weeks. This whole uh, you know, retcon, as it were, happens so that Beverly Ann adopts Andy. By the end of the season, she will be his mother and he'll be living with them. But, oh, 80s sitcoms. Oh, yeah. sitcoms, you and your-
2: I mean, we found out I mean, again, I don't know. I don't want to pre-preface the episode before we get there. But maybe the grandmother wasn't
1: the best person for a young boy to go live with. Or maybe she dies over the next eight weeks. Hey, man, she's real old. Meaning Natalie's curse might have worked. That would have been a more satisfying end to this episode if she had clutched her chest and killed over dead. And Natalie would have rejoiced. What, Matthew? What? What's the matter?
3: seems a little dark for a lighthearted indie sitcom to kill the lady off at the end. I
1: don't know, this woman was pure evil. Yeah, I know, I agree. I'm like, -uh. nah-uh, that's a punishment that fits the crime. She deserves it. It's true. Um, So anyhow, uh, the other thing we have here that is disturbing, this is cut from the syndicated version. So the version you watched, Michael, had three minutes missing from it, mostly little trims that you wouldn't even notice. But looking at the full length version on the DVD, we do have a little exchange here that uh, the, the grandmother says, well, Andy tells me that there's a, you know, there's an issue here with you guys. And I wanted to come and help clear things up. And she says, Andy's an honest boy. I remember when he was three years old, I told him not to play in the dirt. And he came in one day all covered with mud. And I said, Andy, have you been playing in the dirt? And he said, no, Grandma Polly, I've been playing in the mud. <laughs> a cue the laugh track. And so you see, he's a say, good that, boy. A track, and then Natalie's uh, punchline to that bit is, yeah, he's not only good, he's literal. So that's, see, that's that is, that's I agree. That's a great punchline and Mindy Cohn delivers it beautifully. But now <laughs> the thing of, so wait a minute, you're again, eight weeks down the road, you, you were in foster home. These are foster parents. Why do you have a grandmother who allegedly knew you when you were three years old. Um, anyway, very, very weird, very, very strange. That uh, I don't remember if the grandmother is mentioned when it's all, well, can't you go live with other family or your grandmother? I forget what it is, well, but.
0: So,
2: well, so the thing is, it's like, okay, so you, you brought up VHS and DVDs and things. Was there a way, other than I guess syndication or reruns, especially if a season is coming out, was there a way for people to even really go back and check any of this? Like, at what point would they have been able to rewatch the episode and have that realization from themselves? Eight weeks is not a short amount of time. So I'm like, I almost feel like they were preying upon that. They were like, we can do little things like this because no one will actually remember. Only in rewatching can they remember. And then even the rewatches, would they just, I, I don't know how old TV used to go where a season would end and then next week would they just, re-air from the start of the season or would it just go in syndication on another channel so you would get random episodes or like how I guess that's the thing is they I I feel like the writers were absolutely banking on the fact that no one could check there was no way for some uh, maybe two or three people with amazing memories would remember but I don't know as anybody eight weeks later who was paying attention to tv in the 80s would be like wait a
1: second so yeah I feel like I feel like yeah they counted on that too much yeah, you know, As you said, yeah. and as Matthew said, they reruns weren't as much of a thing, and shows didn't have superfans, and particularly the home video market didn't exist. It was definitely, yeah. this show was in reruns, but the current episodes running now, you wouldn't see them until the first rerun in the summer, and then yeah. they wouldn't get into the syndication package probably for another couple of years. Yeah. So, yeah, you're right. But the big cliffhanger at the end of this act is while they're talking about, you know, we want to get to the bottom of this. And uh, Beverly Ann does say, so uh, Polly, you know, um, may I call you Polly? And she says, well, of course, or you can call me Desiree. Dum, dum, dum. And we fade to commercial.
3: Now she knows why she's there. Yeah why not just leave out the desiree part and say well this has been fun everybody bye and then that ends the scooby-doo fucking work that they've all done to try to figure out who's got the mask on yeah and that's what was funny about this episode was this woman literally
2: came in to light a fire and take names like she didn't give a single thought no like she came in and was like by the way your story sucked i stole it i changed the name I'm here to tell you to get fucked. Like literally (laughs) that was her energy coming in here from the start. Like she literally walked in going, come at me, bitches. Like there was no, there was no little lady niceness like at all. She was like, I am here to, to ruin your lives. And she sticks to uh, her guns. She
1: sticks to the fact that she says that, uh, well, no, my story is different. It's nothing like yours. And they're like, oh, but you admit you did read it. And she says, well, I did, because I needed something to put me to sleep. And then she says, I did rework it, but I reworked it so that it's a completely different piece. And then Natalie says, but it's worse than the original. And she says, well, then why am I the one? They paid $500, bitch. like literally, yeah. it would have been a more interesting if she had, like you said, play, she, she's a sweet, adorable little old Southern lady. And she, you know, her Southern twang is there and there's a joke later, but what if she had come in and said, "There's a, there's been some, Andy tells me there's been some confusion as opposed to call me Desiree, have her say, but Andy tells me there's a problem. You seem to think that you wrote an article that appeared in the magazine. I wrote that, that is mine. Yeah have her start from that place, not this big reveal and have Natalie go, what, what do you mean it's yours? That couldn't be, it, it. everything is matched up. And I know for a fact, Andy copied my story and had a copy of it at your house that you probably looked at. And she could just Which, be like, oh, I don't know what you're talking at all. I mean, uh,
2: she- And then by, by the end of the episode, have her admit like, I did this because X, Y, Z, I was feeling like I'm not artistic enough. And you have that moment where you're like, you know, you don't have to steal other people's stuff in order to feel artistic. But this woman came in guns blazing moment yeah. one. Like she came in and was like, bah, bah, blah, 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 Like, took no prisoners. Like, what an interesting place for the episode to
1: go. And she does say it's the first time I've sold a story in 50 years of trying. And yes, they paid her $500, which shocks Natalie. She had no idea that there was that much of a payday. That's Mm -hmm. about $1,272 in today's money, by the way.
2: Doesn't she at one point too, like when they're walking out, like talk about using the $500? Maybe I'm misremembering that. Come on. I
1: mean, she's being a cunt. She's like, come on, Andy. Let's go spend our $500. And Andy shrugs and says, well, $500 isn't what it used to be. And Natalie says, yeah, it used to be mine. Great line. Great exit line. But
3: yeah, she's rubbing her goddamn nose in it. It's like, bitch. And also, who's this kid? Andy. He practically gets in Natalie's face and goes, $500 $500 ain't what it used to be, bitch. And walked out. <laughs> yeah. Like, I'm like...
2: Like, don't don't be so upset. Yeah. It's not that much money. Like, who who what? is
1: this kid? Uh, exactly. Again, and, I wanted to hit him every moment he was on screen. Yeah, and not running any interference, not a scene later with him. Uh, w- there was no scene with just him and Natalie saying, Natalie, could you please not? go after my grandmother for X, Y, Z reason and make that be another thing. I mean, the next scene is uh, all the others kind of weighing in with like, well, maybe you shouldn't. Well, she's an old lady. Well, she's a neighbor. They don't live far. They're part of the neighborhood and stuff. But it would have been much more interesting to have Andy be the one to come and appeal and reestablish his place in their family versus just being an accessory to this crime and, not really giving a shit about it. It,
2: it makes me wonder, I, here's the thing, you can say it didn't follow a formula, like writing wise, the episode didn't follow a formula. The writers were like, yo, we're gonna throw a grenade in the middle of this episode and, and see what happens. So I, from that standpoint, I don't even know if it's a poorly written episode. I think it was a it was a cool concept that I don't know was executed super well, but again, that was, I was, I was blown away by this old woman just being like, what up, this is, I'm taking your shit and I'm taking this kid and uh, everybody else can get like <laughs> uh,
1: No, you're, you're not wrong. Um, I'm not sure, I, I don't look at this as good writing in the sense that she's a one note character. Wouldn't it have been much more mm-hmm. interesting to have her come in and like I say, play the old lady Angle and just act like, oh, no, dear, that was my story. I made it up. Well, goodbye, we have to leave now. Then in the later scene, when Andy's not around, when sweet grandma doesn't have to be putting on a show, that's when she could say, look, I don't care if I stole your story. It's the first one I ever got published. It's the first money I ever made. You're gonna have to take me to court. And that would have been more interesting to have her you know, reveal herself later to be a psycho bitch. That would have yeah. been awesome. And given the actress much more interesting stuff to play. So in this scene, I do have to point out that uh, while the girls are kind of like, Natalie, maybe you should, maybe you shouldn't. Tootie uh, does say, I thought you had an early shift at the cannery. And she says, no, I can do that another time. Like basically I'm, I'm missing work because I'm so fixated and focused on this thing. Um, she did mention the cannery back in episode six. That she had worked at the cannery but we had not heard about it previously so back when we were analyzing season eight episode six the little chill is what it was called we were like what is this cannery she talks about we never heard her talk about working at a cannery well this is it it's just again out of sequence so doesn't make sense network not writers network problem uh, so after the girls leave we have natalie alone with beverly ann and uh, particularly with the girls starting in with the nah, did she really do that much damage did it really hurt you um beverly ann finds out that and andy does show up and say grandma is asking you to come over she wants to talk to you and beverly ann basically says go talk to her but natalie y- you gotta you can't go in there firing on all cylinders with guns ablazing. And Natalie's like, no, the woman's finally going to admit she's a thief and give me what I deserve, my credit, my money, and an apology. Then I'm going to give her what she deserves. And then Beverly Ann says, Natalie, she wants to talk to you. This is a peace offering and you're going to war. And Natalie's like, okay, fine, fine. So she says, can you be under control? And Natalie's like, yes, I'm under control. And Natalie leaves and Beverly Ann is now alone with the piano. So then this weird moment happens where we want to give Cloris Leachman the ability to show that she actually plays the piano. So she sits down and starts hammering this big, amazing piece. And uh, do you know what the piece was that she was playing, gentlemen? No. I did have to do quite a bit of research and a lot of uh, (laughs) uh, needle in a haystack hunting on YouTube to find what it is. It is uh, an 1868 piece uh, by Edvard Grieg, a concerto in A minor. He is a Norwegian composer, and it's where you have the low rumble in the in the bass, boom, and the uppers, upper parts. for the, This is for the listeners now. It's that bum, ba-da-dum, 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 ba-da-dum. ba-da-dum all, it's all kind of very grand and almost sinister, and it's, it's an amazing piece, and she yeah. plays it very, very well. And as she gets towards the end of this first line of music, Natalie comes running in and says, I'm not sure I am under control. You better come with me to run interference. So she pulls her away from the piano, out they go. And then the piano is revealed to be a player piano? Yeah, it just kept playing. What, what? <laughs> Not and not like, the piece that she was playing, just some random no. thing. It's like, she was playing the piano. That was not a misdirect. That was really Gloria Leachman playing the piano. What right. the fuck, I don't get what kind of a button they thought this <laughs> was for this
3: scene. I would have liked to have been in the in the writers' room when somebody was like, "You guys, what what if when they get up and go,
0: it's a player piano?" Yeah, and everybody was (laughs) like, "Yes." I
2: I saw that almost like someone was writing a cartoon, like more like more than so 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 honestly, I don't even think the joke was, "Aha, it's a player piano." That wasn't it. It was just. We're going to end this moment with the piano playing itself. And that's it. We're not trying to say anything more than the piano yeah. is playing itself. And that's We funny. just need a
1: button. Any type of button. If it's a button, it's a button. button. Good.
0: And
2: and like, you know, you could see that happening in a, in a cartoon, you know, where someone's like playing, and then they step away and go, and you're like, that's a cartoon. Magical realism. It's whatever. You know, people pull their faces off in cartoons. It's, it's cool. And I feel like that was that. Because I was like, they had to... What they had to do what they had to do for that just that moment was they had to get a player piano and then make sure that chorus could play the piano and then somebody could press a button and immediately launch into a player piano song and i know that you can play a player piano but like they had to go find the prop had to be a player piano, or even more what would probably makes sense is that when if you if what you said earlier when they had the they've had this piano if it's the same prop that they've had the whole time maybe it was always a player piano and for them they went hey isn't that thing a player piano oh okay well you got it, okay, this it. Will, yeah this will be funny
3: right I thought just like you Michael I was like it should have I felt like they should have just let it play that something yeah because. That it was I I was like, that's so weird.
1: It was or have her not playing such this big grand dramatic piece, have her be playing like dum 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 something light and Mozarty, and then Natalie come running in. I'm not in control. You better come with me and never run. And then have the piano go bum 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 bum. That would have been a more sensible, like, oh, maybe there's some drama afoot
3: after all. I, I would I mean, have liked her to have been playing a song that she doesn't get to the ending to, where she might be humming along. Yeah, and then yeah. they pull her off and she has to come back and like, and like, she sings, somewhere over the rain. And that's when Natalie interrupts yep. her. And after the interaction, she goes out, but then she has to finish the phrase. Like, as, an, as a singer, like, you have to finish that musical yeah. phrase, like, just to come run back in and go, Oh. <laughs>
1: Love it. That's, see, that's comedy. That's coming. There you go, Matthew. We will be putting that in our notes yes. that we send thank in the time you, machine. Back to the writers.
3: Thank uh, you, Michael. So before oh, we get you. into the final scene
1: of the episode at Andy's grandmother's house, Michael, we do like to do a little bit of an interview with our guests and talk a bit about you and your career. Mm. And oh, I was first? wondering if you would maybe give us uh, a quick little mic tour of your life and Uh, what brought you to Central Florida. So where were you born and where were you raised?
2: Uh, I was born in Charlotte, North Carolina, but I was raised in Mount Pleasant, Michigan. Ah,
1: I get a more Um, Michigan vibe from you than I do North Carolina. Okay, that that makes sense. That tracks.
2: Yeah, grew up in in Mount Pleasant, Michigan, a small town in the middle of Michigan, went to Central Michigan University uh, studying uh, education and theater. Um, But when I was in college, um my dad and I were on vacation here and they had a big thing that said casting now outside of the casting building It was like a huge sign that just said casting now and I was I was 18 and my dad was like yo rock up into an interview like wouldn't you want to work for Disney World and I was like yeah I would so randomly we pull in he drops me off I go in I do an interview and they were like that's awesome uh you're the exact type of person we'd like and they were like, well, where would you want to work? And I was like, well, I, I want to be in entertainment. I, I want to do it. And they're like, hold up. Um, <laughs> well, that's a. You have to go to auditions for that. And you can't just. And I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, we, we were totally. thinking custodial were like, or
1: food service. Yeah. yeah.
2: Well, they were like, but we have attractions uh, that are high speed attractions. So would you be interested in that? And then you can audition while you're here. I was like, yes. Also, I'm so sorry. Um. This was on a whim and you're offering me a job right now. Can I think about it? They're like, we're going to hold the job for two weeks. So I didn't take the job at that point. And then I had like a garbage year. Like I went to, to school. I, I had a garbage year at, at college and I was like, fuck it. I'm going back. So I called them and I was like, hi, I literally called. I was like, hi, I did an interview a year ago. Uh, they offered me a job. Can I have a job please? And they were like, can you come for another interview? So my dad flew me down. I was here for literally less than 48 hours. Didn't interview. They offered me the same job. So uh, four weeks later, I was a jungle cruise skipper.
1: Oh, and yes,
2: yes. I I started out, and then you know everyone in entertainment was going to New York or they were going to Los Angeles, so they were going wherever. And I was like, "Yo, Central Florida got plenty. There's so much entertainment." And so when I graduated, I was like, "I'm I I and I I." It needs to be noted. I came back every spring break, every winter break, and every summer to work. So I was seasonal. And they just let me. They just let me go off and then come back. And I stayed with my friends in their apartment, slept on their couch and went to work. And so I had this network of people. So I moved here and um, I did not get hired at Disney uh, in entertainment for quite some time because I was still I was still doing the Jungle Cruise, but I got hired at Universal and in 2012. And I've been professionally working in entertainment since. And since then, uh, I've written about close to 10 plays that have been put up and produced at the Fringe Festival or at various other places. Uh, recently, I've gotten into a lot of directing. I just did Plaid Tidings at Osceola Arts, so I directed that, but I would usually direct um, I usually direct a lot of my own stuff, but that was one of the first things I got to do where like somebody hired me for their company to direct. Um, but yeah, a lot of writing, working on original stuff. I, I help run a very small um, theater company that nobody knows about, but we've done some stuff. Uh, in town called New Generation theatrical. So I'm the executive director for that. We have a brand new season coming up. So really my main focus is is original work, like trying to cultivate like brand new writers, brand new uh, work that hasn't been seen and putting that up. And so that's been my career and just been working. I did get hired in entertainment at Disney Pirates uh, for the not so scary and that's where I met Matthew. And he was literally like just the funniest person in the fricking break room. Just listening to him tell stories is the He's greatest. The best. Um, and, uh, and so that was me at Disney. And so I've just, that's my, that is, I hope that didn't take too long. That was uh, my career in a nutshell. <laughs> and what do you, what roles do you do at Universal? I do uh, when it comes back, which it should be coming back very soon. Uh, Taylor at Poseidon Fury um i do sam at tales of beat of the bard i do uh conductor the hogwarts express i am a host at dreamworks destination i am also a host at stars i also do the troop which is this uh front of the park where, like
1: atmosphere entertainment at the front of ioa now i think that's it so our paths probably have also crossed when i've been uh on the days i've been friends with the wand keeper Matthew also tells me you are a published author and that you would be uh, someone who might have some familiarity with how publishing works and- Have you ever written for a porno, Mago?
2: (laughs) I have not,
1: no. I do not have any knowledge of you uh, as a writer, writer, but uh, talk to us about that.
2: So it's generous to say published technically because I did Mm -hmm. self-publish. So I I self-published on Amazon. Um, but it was really cool. I have a friend who's in town. Her name's Caitlin Bellamy, and she's had a lot of success self-publishing. I am familiar um, with Caitlin. And we have worked
1: together many times. She yeah. is a delight.
2: She's great. Um, and yeah, so she she coached me through how to take this book I wrote and put it through the proper program so that it's formatted right, and then you can upload it. And so, yeah, it's really cool. It really is just the way to go. Um, because you know, it's a uh, publishing is a lot like auditioning you know, you have this piece and you have to, and you send it to publishing houses. But really what you have to do is you have to send what's called a query letter to a literary agent. So you don't just send it. Like, I can't just be like, Hey, Scholastic, here's my book. They'll, they, they Their website says, we don't do that. They'll throw it away. So you have to do a publishing agent. So you have to find the publishing agent that fits what you wrote and send them a letter. That's like, hi, this is what my book's about. And here's the first three chapters of the book and bless if any of them even remotely read it you know You must get thousands
1: Um, every day of people oh yeah
2: and and so publishing a novel in my opinion from the small time that I tried to do it the regular route is honestly it's less likely to happen than um uh, booking an audition Mm -hmm. on Broadway frankly Like I, you walk into a Barnes and Noble and you see so many books and you're like, it must be easy to get published because there's thousands and thousands and thousands of books. But for every one of those, there's probably another thousand that didn't get published. So it's, in my opinion, it was easier for me to go, I'm not looking to be a, I'm not looking to be a huge author here. I'm not, I, that's not my goal. I don't want to, I, I would love to be, but I'm not here to be the next, you know, uh, John Grisham. Um. I just want people to read my book. So here it is. It's available. Let me go to my circles and just say, if you'd like to read my book, I'd love that. And then depend on Amazon's algorithms, which are cool because frequently if someone buys something, it'll recommend something else. My book, the one book I have up there is a holiday book. It's a Christmas book. And what's nice about that is when people search Christmas books. So they search a certain thing, there's keywords, and then my book might come up. And the nice thing about Amazon is they don't know if you were published through like a publishing house or you just put it on there so they can take more of a chance on you.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So it's really cool. Um, and I've gotten some reviews from people who I don't know, but what's more happened with my book is like my friends have read it. And then they go, oh, my mom would really like this. So then they send it to their mom and then their mom has recommended it to their aunt. And, then, and so it's gotten out a little bit,
1: but it's not huge. But that's, that is my publishing in a nutshell. And there is some upfront expense for you as, a, as self-published? That's the beauty part, no. No. No, so a lot of self-publishers
2: do charge. There are places that will do it and it costs a lot. It's like 1500 bucks, but they'll give you like this many copies and um, and but you have to pay to do it. Amazon, it's literally like uploading a PDF. Now, the thing is, is you, you wanna make it quality. So I found a program online, a free program, but you can also pay for that where you upload your manuscript and you'll format it correctly. And then you should probably get somebody to design a cover for you. But Amazon has a cover designer. So you can literally take an image and you can put it in there and they'll they'll let you design your cover. And then, so now you've got your image on there. You've got your manuscript uploaded. And if you click order a hard copy, they will send you a copy of your book with a cover.
1: And it is- And it's print to so order. It's like the way t-shirts yes. and mugs are made now where-
2: Yeah, so I, at, at that point, there's an upfront cost. Like for me to order author copies, it costs me- just the cost of printing, like the cost of printing and shipping is yeah. what it costs. Like I'm ordering, but it's not like I'm purchasing my own book. So if you purchase it, it's X amount of dollars. If I'm ordering it, I get it so I can resell it for, and it comes with an I- IBS or I- ISBN, whatever the thing is, comes yeah. with that. Mm-hmm. So it, it registers it. So like you can order them and sell them and it will register it through Amazon. If it's like scam. Oh, that's cool. Um, yeah. And so as far as like
1: you doing, you can really just publish your stuff. You can just, if you have a book, put it up. Because I was going to say that it seems to me that the self-publishing route is to, you know, being an author, like a podcast is to making your own radio show. Very much so. There is some upfront to have the the website that hosts and Mm -hmm. stores the file so that the podcatchers can find it and, and import it. But once it's out there, yeah. I've gotten word. And there, there are, there are, you know, if you do a Google search of this podcast, there are, there are podcast players and apps out there that I've never even heard of, but mm-hmm. it it's just, it found me and it pulls it in. And if you have this app, you can listen to my show there. And it's not a lot of upfront expense, but it, it's really nice because, um, our friend Ken Reed always said that podcasting and now self-publishing, it has even the playing field. You are on Amazon and your book, your Christmas book may be recommended next to a John Grisham and a Stephen King Christmas book yeah. that also may interest the potential buyer. And You know, my podcast can come up if you search the facts of life, if they mention the facts of life on My Favorite Murderer or Office Ladies or something, you might find me and them in the same search. And and that's pretty fucking cool. I, my thing with
2: any sort of art is, you know, it's the age old, hey, you're not looking for fame. You're not looking to make millions of dollars. I mean, look, if it happens, awesome. But the thing about it is I just want to make it and have people enjoy it. So like, for me, it it means more to me than going and and beating my brains out by trying to send query letter after query letter to and chapters and chapters. If I can just do it and advertise it there, I did it. And it's and available. It's and, I and
1: I will share the link on this episode's show notes and, where and anybody can just tap it and read your book. That's valuable to me. Just the same way that like... If I
2: write a play and it goes up at the Fringe, or if I write a play and just pay the upfront cost to produce it, hey, I did it. It, Did I get published by Dramatists? Did I get published by Samuel French? No, but I have a play that has seats that humans can pay ten bucks to come and see, and I've done it. I succeeded. Whereas so many people don't, and so I'm like, just make it happen. Just make it happen for yourself, and I think like that's that's so rewarding. Like that's so valuable especially in a cool market like Orlando where like it's getting bigger the pool's getting bigger so you know you do have to market yourself a little bit more but there people people like art people want to support their friends and and people want to do cool things and so why not all I'm asking for is to be able to pay my rent and and drive my car and do art and so that's that's what there's I did yeah
1: there's there's really never been a better time to be an artist than This now, present day. I mean, pandemic has fucked us over and the disaster. But the other thing is, because of social media platforms, because of the internet, you have the ability to get your art in front of the eyes of so many more people than (laughs) if this were 1972 and you were painting canvases in your garage, who the fuck would see them other than the people you had to actively go out and physically show them to? or take pictures of. The fact is that you can show a painting in progress and, and sell your mm-hmm. work through it. It's, it's pretty amazing.
2: And there's platforms now where you can literally, it, you just create a profile and you upload your art. And
1: now you can be like, hey, if you'd like to buy this, you can, and here's
2: yeah. where. It's,
1: and it, that's it. It. it's amazing. It's <laughs> in, in my lifetime, having seen that shift happen, it's, it's kind of mind blowing. And yeah. yeah. Matthew, what do you want to ask Michael? before we move
3: on from our interview segment to um, Michael, how, how, how exactly tall are you? I'm six foot three, six foot three, David. Did you and, hear that? And I'm sure he's worth the climb. <laughs> he is taller than me, even in heels. Um, <laughs> and what size shoe did does a six foot three man like you what size shoes Uh, wear it's a that's a 12 i wear another trucker a 12 david did you hear that i wear a 12 matthew was that a clear we're not talking about you david oh sorry (sighs) um would you say it's been daunting or or something you've had to overcome Having the same name as the wonderful David Hasselhoff had in the, in the TV show Night Rider. How is that? Um, that like? What's that like? Do they think you're Do they think you're making up a joke when they when you call to order a pizza? No, no, it's 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 not daunting. It's not but it's just something to live with. Probably because nobody remembers that show or that his name oh, Michael no, Knight. Everyone does. It's it's been my whole life. Um and and I remember
2: asking my dad because I was born in 88 and I said, dad, that show was prevalent. Why? And he was like, I I didn't watch that show. I had no idea. I didn't think about it. And I was like, shut up. Like there's everyone gets it. Everyone does it. Oh, Knight Rider. Oh, how's Kit? Oh, and that's been my whole life. And it's just something to live
1: with, you know? I love you. What? (laughs) Well,
0: Michael Knight, that
3: smile. That smile will melt a thousand icebergs. Look at that little smile. It's just, <laughs> Very
0: sweet. It's just so handsome
3: and smart. Oh. I could just sit here and be admired all night. I really could. And Matthew will do it. He Stop do it. it. Stop it. Let's get this over with. We're entering hour two. For Christ's sake. Okay. Okay. This Twenty-two minute episode. Yeah. So true. So yes, Michael Knight. Enough
1: about you. We've got to deal with this conundrum with Natalie and Andy's grandmother. The final scene at Andy's grandmother's house. Before they go into the house, Beverly Ann and Natalie ring the doorbell and it's Camp Town Racism. Do da, do da. It's like, okay, so that's.
3: <laughs> racism is
1: always funny. Never not funny when you have a racist song uh, by as a doorbell. That's, of course, to play up the fact that um, Billy Bird is a Southern lady and there's just no way around it. She never ever played anything other than a Southern woman. But uh, yeah, that was, uh, that's a Stephen Foster song. Stephen Foster's that uh, uh, composer who wrote a lot of uh, the songs that we now know are racist. Matter of fact, when you pull up Camp Town Races, if you Google it, first video comes up, Al Jolson singing it in blackface. Yeah. There it is. <laughs> oh, he
3: wrote minstrel shows. Yeah. Back in the 1800s. Right, including
1: uh, the state song of Florida, "Swanee River,
3: Way and, oh, down upon the swamp He also wrote, Oh Susanna. Um mm-hmm. yeah, all these things.
1: And yeah, uh anyway. So uh yeah, racist doorbell uh, aside, uh we come inside and Beverly Ann comments what a charming house it is. And she does attack it with full of everything imaginable. <laughs> There's a lot of tchotchkes a lot of knickknacks, a lot of bric brac But um she does say oh I invite people here like they're my own family (laughs) don't touch that as Beverly Ann is admiring some figurines on a table some little animal figurines but anyhow uh the the scene doesn't really go anywhere other than grandma says that story is really mine and if you want to lay claim to it you're going to have to sue my doilies off and Uh, For Beverly Ann having been brought in to be Natalie's grounding factor, because Natalie was not feeling fully in control, it's Beverly Ann who starts to get riled up comedically, brilliantly, and Natalie has to calm down Beverly Ann in the process. But then the final word is, she says, I've decided not to sue you. And she's like, why not? Yeah. And Natalie says, and now I'm reading from the script here, because this thing has turned me into someone I don't like. I've become so obsessed I can't think straight. I've become suspicious, paranoid, and for what? Nobody's dead here, nobody's been hurt. And we're fighting, all we're fighting for is some satisfaction. I don't need some court to give me that. Sometimes it's enough to know you're right. You don't always have to prove it. At least I know that when my first story is published, correction, my second, it will be my own. Come on, Beverly Ann. And out she goes, and Beverly Ann says, I'm right behind you, Natalie. And almost goes out the door and then runs back in and fucks around with the figurines. And then leaves. Freeze frame, roll credits, end of episode. Yeah, that's it. I'm like,
3: yeah, you wanted an ending tied up with a bow? Fuck you guys, just like this old lady's attitude.
0: Blam, blam, blam.
2: Yeah, literally, they they kept grandma just being like, I'll fire if you fire. What do you what? want? Let's go. It's. I'm ready to die. Like oh, that. Can right you
3: there. can you single out that sound, David? For me. <laughs> if but you the shoot, thing is- I'll shoot. Oh <laughs> my god! I just but- want to make that my ringtone. <laughs> <laughs>
1: but the thing is, it's like. Uh, You know, like you were saying earlier, Michael, you're like, is this avant garde writing? Because it's doing unexpected things. It's not going where we think it should. I'm like, no, it's a really, I think, classical and in some ways essential uh, element of drama that when you have a protagonist and an antagonist fucks them over, the antagonist has to pay for it. There has to be some sort of comeuppance greater than having her figurines fucked with. I would have liked it if Beverly Ann just knocked the table, just yeah, the light, well, Like
2: Because, because the, the writers right there tried to shoehorn in the message from the other yeah. side. That was the only time that, that we were to see that maybe this woman is out of touch and doesn't understand. Because again, she said, my house is mine. Oh, do not touch those. You see, I've spent a very long time putting them just where I want them. Mm-hmm. So please don't touch them. And that was the metaphor for, I've spent a very long time writing something that isn't yours to touch or make better. That was that was the moment. That was what they were trying to do with that. And then they just left it. Yeah. They were like, ah, you see this lady, this old lady might understand. And they didn't even have Natalie say, the way you made me feel would be as though I went and rearranged your, your uh, things. You've had the, You have this in the exact place you want it. It's something that means a lot to you that you worked a lot of time on. To you, uh, it's important. To me, it just looks like figurines. I could change them and it wouldn't change
1: anything. And that was where they were going, and then they just didn't. Well, then they could have had a bag, like a handbag or something, because they, they live so close, they didn't take purses. It drives me crazy when women go places without purses on television. But I, mm-hmm. I didn't realize they were putting forth that, you no, know, Andy apparently lives really close, like a couple of houses <laughs> down or something. So uh, had they shown up with like a purse, a big handbag, it could have been like, I don't need that. Come on, Beverly Ann. And then have Beverly Ann open up her bag and just sweep the table Beep of the figurines yeah. and put them in the bag and have her say, what? what are you doing? Where are you going with those? And have her say, you want them back? You know what you gotta do, slam that would have been fucking there's there's a
2: million there's a million ways yes i mean i think that's brilliant show her show her what it feels like to have something stolen yeah but instead natalie just goes well i guess i'll give up on this one but i'll do it again it was such a cop-out and she didn't learn anything she didn't win anything and that woman won that woman totally won she learned no lesson Nobody watching learned a lesson. Agreed. Agreed. That's what I do. dislike this. what they, they, There were so many avenues in that moment at the end of that episode in for Natalie to say something, to make that comparison about the figurines, to say, you know, this is mine to have the writers write that woman and say, you know, this was a win for me, but frankly, it's not. It's an empty win. I should be a better person and, and do right. They didn't take that opportunity. There was no reason for Natalie to have to hoist that that loss. Yeah.
1: Or even do uh, play the angle of is this the example you want to set for your grandson? Because he knows yeah. that it was stolen. And any even lesser, lousier writing would still have her getting her come up and where? Natalie would walk out just as the mailman arrives. Oh, look, it's my check, it's my money, it's the other, it's the second payment that they promised. Oh. It's a letter from the publisher saying that they've become aware that it's the same story submitted by somebody else at an earlier date. The idea is that the magazine could find out. Yeah. that It's like, wait a minute, we don't publish shit that you plagiarized. So
3: you need to return the money. Is this before or after you have Beverly Ann flipping the fucking figurine table, David? Uh, when, that would have been so gratifying. Oh, my it's God. It's a lovely piece of whimsical, fun, 80s sitcom. Nobody has to learn anything. <sighs> david Ice. and that's the thing
2: i i think like that's literally where the writers wanted to go where they're like sometimes you lose welcome to the
3: 80s it's an episode i would i will watch if it's on i wouldn't skip it on the dvd you know what i mean so mm-hmm. i'm not i <laughs> i i have questions i have issues but i mean it's it's it, it, i don't have to learn anything
1: I'm going to take the high road and I'm not going to sue you. And we're going to walk out with our chins held high because we know the truth. Oh, and by the way, when Andy comes home, tell him his little fucking 13 year old ass is fired and don't ever set foot in our store again. Yeah, for real. Like, fuck him. Because clearly you, you old bitch, don't have any sense of how much we are, how much we mean to him. Oh no, no. I'm really hoping that I'm just forgetting, but that when, uh, Andy is like, well, my foster parents are splitting up. I I, I hope there's one. can Kate live with a grandmother? No. Remember, she killed over dead seven weeks ago. The cats picked her clean before we got to the house. I don't know. Yeah, like something just, that woman deserves bad things. Yeah, she does. She does. And I'm like, oh, right now, life, especially since uh, since 2016, it seems like an awful lot of the bad people, the wrong people, are not mm-hmm. being held to task for their ills, for their wrongdoings. And it's been an extremely frustrating time, like I said, for me and my overbloated sense of justice. So I'm like in a sitcom from 1986, from when I was a freshman in college, yeah. I need the simplicity from that time in my life when I still believe that bad people got their comeuppance and good people somehow would eventually prevail. Sadly, my, my battered and worn ideals of 53-year-old David, I, I don't believe that anymore. And it's, it's terribly tragic and sad.
3: Oh, God, 53, did you hear that, Michael? Um, <laughs> what are your final thoughts, Michael, as we head into hour three of the, of the dance marathon? <laughs> I don't
2: think that there's anything good in writing about not delivering a satisfying ending unless you can, unless you can give somebody a really uh, poignant message in the, in the uh, piece as a whole, there's no reason not to deliver a satisfying. Thank you. You should. um, And I think that that's, that's something that writers do to be edgy and they shouldn't. Um, And I also think that this was a really good exploration of what it's like to have your art disrespected as something that is time consuming and that matters and is an extension of you. And I think that they they touched on the surface. I wish they'd have gone deeper uh, with this. I really do. But I think that I at least saw shades of, this was something that meant a lot to her. And this is something that happens to artists a lot, which is you're an artist the next thing is the next thing, what you did this, it doesn't really matter in the in the grander scheme. And when it it does, your performance matters, your, your writing matters, your show matters. The thing that you do as far as your art that you're putting out in the world matters and it shouldn't be disrespected. And I think it went to show just how disrespected people's art can be. And I would hope that anybody watching would at least um, think about that. I wish that the writers of this episode had delivered that on a silver platter a little bit more but I would hope that that's what they take away from it. Oh,
1: God, preach, so,
2: preach, you so hallelujah!
3: Smart. You're so smart,
1: Michael. <laughs> but Matthew, that's what I said before. Similarly, I was making
3: a similar point. Oh, David, yes, you're right too. <laughs> oh my God, it has been like the best two hours of like my month. Uh, I'm just gonna look at your handsome face and. Oh, how many times I wish I had a scratch-and-sniff screen, if you know what I mean. Oh, <laughs> God, you're just a beautiful, smart hunk of man. My God.
2: Well, you guys are great. Honestly, Matthew, I really appreciate it. I love talking to you any opportunity I get to. It is always awesome. And I, I really missed this year not being able to hang out during Halloween. So I'm hoping that it comes around again. You um, do write I plays,
3: that- you know. <laughs> you're I do, aware of my and-
2: talents <clears throat> I am. and we will we will make that happen as soon as i can i actually have a meeting immediately following this about our upcoming season um, and so- I'm,
3: I'm comfortable with nudity and um, Good. um with or without the disclaimer i think it's it's with the, with my type it's important to spring it on them
1: and okay. um and just I'm so you on- know both matthew and i we are offer
3: only Good. Offer only. Good I'm job. also willing to spend. There's no audition t- for you guys. Willing to spend time on the casting couch. <laughs> and, um, yeah.
1: If that's what you mean by auditioning, then Matthew absolutely will audition. There,
3: enough, I'm happy to enough. happy to show you my oral skills, if you know what I mean. <laughs>
1: But all right all right you
3: guys both i really appreciate it. this was really wonderful
2: um it was really good to sit and talk to you for a lot longer david it was great and
1: to have this time yeah. this is the longest we've ever spoken and i hope it's not the last time we talk for i hope so if you guys a long length of time i would happily come back on okay. so send me more episodes well we'll we will definitely try to make that happen before the series ends but until then smooches my dear and goodbye Mwah.
3: Okay. Bye, Michael. I love you, Michael. I love you, Michael. Bye. Okay. Stop it. Goodbye, Michael. Jeez. Oh, he's so clingy.
1: And there you have it. That was Michael Knight. I'll post links to his website where you can see a lot of the projects that he has worked on and is currently working on, as well as a link to his book on Amazon, which is called Ember's Gifts, A Christmas Tale*. Now, one thing that was uh, an afterthought, uh, we were recording a different show, and Matthew said that uh, he was thinking about the talk that we had here about needing a literary agent. And Matthew said, wouldn't that have been a great thing to explore if the show had thought, let's get Natalie a literary agent trying to find her work, or make part of Natalie's journey the quest to find a literary agent? And while we're talking about it, why not have Tootie getting a talent agent as well to try and find her acting work? These were some missed opportunities they could have explored, and it could have been uh, some fun opportunities to bring in some wacky characters. Immediately, I'm thinking about Joey's agent on Friends, and I cannot think of her name, but I absolutely loved every time she was on the show. Anyway, next week, a big episode. A very beloved, popular, well-known, and well-remembered episode. Season 8, Episode 12, Seven Little Indians. We are going to have Ken Reed from TV Guidance Counselor back on the show, and I cannot wait. You can watch the show ahead of time for free at dailymotion.com. I will post a link in the show notes and on this episode's webpage. That is all, guys. Thank you so much for listening to this week's show. And remember, the facts of life are all about you.
0: Let's Face the Facts was created, produced, written, hosted, and edited by the wonderful David Almeida. Our theme song was beautifully arranged and recorded by Ned Wilkinson. Please visit facethefaxpod.com for supplemental photos and videos, links to social media, and ways that you can support the show. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. This is Matthew Arder saying tune in again next week for another thrilling episode of Let's Face the Facts.